Hi, everyone. This is Scott from Prepare to Answer. I want to share some news with you about an exciting new resource that we've created called So Much More Than Sex. It's no secret that the subject of sex is one of the biggest concerns for young Christians today. That's why we've created So Much More Than Sex for senior teens and young adults. It's a four-part video series, complete with notes and discussion questions, that you can do with your young adults class, small group, or even on your own. The point of the series is to help you shift the narrative about sex away from seeing biblical teaching as little more than an outdated list of do's and don'ts, and replacing it with the overwhelmingly positive, life-giving, and eternally significant vision that the Bible gives for your sexually ordered body. If you want to get in on the So Much More Than Sex series, just follow the link in the episode description. And now we turn to today's episode. It's because of our rebellion against God. It's because of our sin and our embrace of the lie and the fact that God's wrath is now being poured out against us. That's why these things have come. So we cannot therefore take a label like gay, which identifies a desire that the Bible calls sinful and attach it to our Christian identity. Welcome to another episode of the Prepare to Answer podcast. I'm your host, Sean Walker, along with Scott Steen. Our goal, as always, is to discuss, analyze, and dissect current cultural issues from a biblical worldview. As we come to the end of June, which is celebrated as Pride Month in the LGBT community, we thought we'd ask the question, can you be gay and Christian? You know what, Scott, I think we need to begin by asking, is this question even relevant? I mean, why are we talking about this in the year 2020? Well, the short answer, Sean, is that it's relevant because this is a question that I think is crucial to the gospel. No, the gospel isn't about sex per se. It's about holiness. But in calling Christians to be holy, that necessarily includes not only our sexual behavior, but also our thoughts and ideas about sex. It's all included in loving God with all of our hearts and our soul and our mind and our strength. For our listeners who might be a little less familiar with Prepared to Answer, what I want to do is put this question and our discussion into context. As a ministry prepared to answer, we would identify with uh, what we would call an evangelical Christian tradition. And if you look back in history, as social values and attitudes regarding homosexuality and same things like same-sex marriage, as that began shifting in the culture, and it's really been shifting over the last 30 to 40 years, historically, evangelical Christianity became very conspicuous in its unwillingness to depart from an historic biblical Christian belief that God created sex and marriage exclusively for the lifelong marital union between one man and one woman. Within the last 10 years, even that has begun to change. I really have seen two shifts taking place in evangelical Christianity over the last 5 to 10 years. The first shift is that in some cases there are evangelical Christian churches and Christians who are ready to make the move and have made the move to re-envision a biblical view of marriage that would affirm loving and faithful same-sex unions. The second shift I've seen is taking place among evangelical Christians and churches who affirm the historical biblical teaching on sex and marriage, but recognize the broad range of experiences that people have when it comes to same-sex attractions. 
And so in these cases, they still want to affirm the sinfulness of any same-sex behavior or actions, but they want to make room for integrating alternative sexual identities into our identity in Christ. So making room for someone to identify themselves as a gay Christian while at the same time choosing to live out a celibate lifestyle as their expression of faithfulness to biblical sexual purity. So I'd say, Sean, it's relevant because the discussion is ongoing within evangelical Christian churches and because there's a great deal, what I see is a great deal of confusion leading many Christians into dangerous errors and compromises. That's why I see it as relevant. Here's why I think it's important. I think it's important because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 to 11. He says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. So because the issue of homosexuality has been debated so much in the last five to ten years among Bible-believing evangelical Christians, and because the result has been a lack of consensus, whereby now, as I described earlier, you have some churches that are advocating the affirmation of same-sex unions and lifestyles and identities, while others do not. What we're seeing now is that many Christians have simply decided that this whole subject of homosexuality is just going to have to be one of those issues that Christians need to agree to disagree over. And so for the sake of Christian unity, there are many who just want to drop the subject and stop talking about it, who want to treat it along the same lines as doctrinal differences among Christians over things like mode of baptism or women in leadership or the doctrine of end times and things like that. But it's nothing of the sort. It's not in the same category as those kinds of differences. Because what Paul is saying is crystal clear. You cannot embrace, affirm, or cling to what God calls sin and inherit the kingdom of God. This is not a matter of dispute. This is an issue of sin and righteousness. The gospel itself is at issue, and the eternal salvation of souls is what is at stake. Wow, yeah. So, it's important. That's for sure. Yeah, you could say it's important. (laughs) Sure. Okay. So you talked about these two shifts that we're seeing, and and these are specifically in evangelical Christianity. Uh, So in the first case, evangelical Christians are saying that faithful, lifelong same-sex unions are an acceptable expression of marital love. And then in the other case, Christians are maintaining a biblical view of sex as being reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. But making room for those who struggle with same-sex attraction to adopt a gay identity label, so something like gay Christians. So of those two, which are we talking about today? So it's that second issue that I'd like to address, because I think that's where there's, there's some real confusion creeping into the church. I'd like to speak to the other issue as well, but I feel like that's maybe another longer discussion to be had at some point. So really today what I'd like to do is to be able to help those who experience same-sex attraction and so would identify themselves in some way as a gay Christian, but also want to remain faithful to a biblical ethic of sexual behavior. And so the question being asked is, can I do that? Can that be my choice to choose to remain you know, sexually pure, but at the same time wear this label as a way of trying to understand my identity in Christ as someone who has these somewhat unique challenges when it comes to sexual attraction? 
So that's what I'd like to address. And that's kind of what I meant in posing the question, you know, can you be gay and Christian? So really, it's can you have a gay identity? To answer the question, I think it's helpful for us to clarify the language we use, specifically what we mean when we say gay. Because if you go out on the street and ask a dozen people what the word gay means, you'll probably get a dozen different answers. So I think we want to be clear on on our terminology. I found a work that was written actually in 2010 by Mark Yarhouse, who has been a very prominent and, and leading voice in evangelical Christian circles as a clinical psychologist, as a, as a teacher in counseling at a major Christian university in the States. He wrote a book in 2010 called Homosexuality and the Christian, A Guide for Parents, Pastors, and Friends. In that book, Yarhouse makes this three-tiered distinction when talking about or using the term gay, realizing that people in the culture use it very different ways. And so he really sees there's this three-tiered distinction. The first tier of meaning he sees as simply same-sex attraction. Some people, when they say gay, what they mean is same-sex attraction, which is purely a descriptive way that people talk about their feelings. He says it doesn't hint at who they are or what they do. It's merely descriptive. He says we're simply talking about the fact that a person experiences same-sex attraction. And that's all we're saying. The second tier he jumps to, he says, is the tier of homosexual orientation. That sometimes when people say gay, what they're referring to is homosexual orientation, which he defines this way. He says when people talk about having a homosexual orientation, they are essentially saying that they experience a same-sex attraction that is long enough, durable enough, and persistent enough for them to feel that they are oriented toward the same sex. So that's the second tier. The third one is the tier he refers to as gay identity. So when some people say gay, what they're referring to is a gay identity, which he says is a sociocultural label that people use to describe themselves. And it's a label that is imbued with meaning in our culture. He says when people take on this label, they move beyond just describing their experience and instead they are forming their identity. So in general terms, though he makes a three-tier distinction, he's kind of in general terms making a divide between using the term gay as simply a description of experience versus gay as an identity label. So if I use gay to refer to same-sex attraction, I'm just talking about what I experience. But if I use gay as an identity label, I'm talking about who I am. This is maybe a little helpful, but I actually think it's kind of confusing. Part of the problem I find is that here, Yarhouse is trying to help Christians make sense of their experiences while still using the culture's conceptual framework of sexual orientation, which itself is, and I'll use his words, imbued with meaning in our culture. And we talked about that that a little bit in our last episode, talking about sexual orientation as a cultural framework. See, Yarhouse seems to see sexual orientation as a part of our vocabulary for simply describing experiences only. And so in his mind, it's possible for Christians to use the word gay as a way of only referring to their experience of same-sex attraction and not as a cultural identity. And here's something he says a little later on in his book. He says, some Christians who experience same-sex attraction adopt a gay identity, but they transform the meaning of the word gay. That is, they use gay to simply mean that they experience same-sex attractions or have a homosexual orientation. He says they use gay as a kind of shorthand that's readily acknowledged in the broader culture. Well, I have a real problem with that. 
As we discussed in our last episode, this word oriented has a cultural history that's just packed with meaning. If you want to go back to our last episode and listen to our discussion on this, we unpacked the history of the term sexual orientation. And we really talked about how it started with Freud, that with Freud, sexuality shifted from a verb, that is just what we do as humans, to a noun, that is what we are, the kind of being we are. And I think we need to remember that this shift was rooted in the transformation of our Western worldview from a biblical view of man as a creature made by a creator to an evolutionary view of man as the product of just natural forces and chance. And on that view, man's essence or his nature was discovered only through the study of his existence in the world. In very simple terms, it became the case that our understanding of what we are was determined simply by studying what we do or experience. So I think that Yarhouse isn't quite saying enough in trying to define this idea of sexual orientation because it isn't just a term used to distinguish between a simple experience of same-sex attraction versus a prolonged, durable, persistent same-sex attraction. In the vocabulary and mind of our culture, sexual orientation is a statement about what kind of person you are. It's a statement about your very nature, about what you are. And again, that's a problem because as we discussed last week, that very idea is a cultural construction grounded in a non-biblical worldview. Yeah, and it would also seem like the terms long enough, durable enough, and persistent enough would be very hard to define. It would be different for every person, wouldn't it? Yeah, you're right. That's a really good point. In fact, Yarhouse admits as much. He says this in his book. He says, no one knows how much attraction to the same sex is necessary for a person to feel that their orientation is now homosexual or bisexual. He said this would be impossible to measure. So so that even the way we define sexual orientation makes determining sexual orientation an entirely private and personal decision. So you can see how problematic that is. Each person, based entirely on their own subjective personal experiences, is concluding that they are in some very fundamental way a different kind of human being. That is, they have a different kind of nature than other people do. Someone who really hit on this, uh, there's a great book I'm going to recommend a little bit later, written by Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She makes this comment uh, to this point exactly. She says, the concept of sexual orientation blurs the relationship between personhood and sexual practice, whether desired or actual. She says, Christians are called saints in the Bible. We who bear Christ's spilled blood are a royal priesthood. And any category of personhood that reduces a saint to a sum total of his or her fallen sexual behavior is not a friend of Christ. So what I see as one of the really big problems is how inseparable the word gay is in the mind of our culture, in in the vocabulary and the way that we use words, how inseparable it is from sexual orientation. Even where Christians with same-sex attraction agree with the Bible's teaching about sex and therefore choose singleness and chastity as their commitment to sexual purity, choosing gay as a Christian identity label means accepting the unbiblical category of sexual orientation and its godless assumptions about human nature. Okay, but if we take that into account, can a Christian who experiences same-sex attraction use the word gay just to mean exactly that? That is that they are a Christian who struggles with same-sex attraction. Yeah, I think that's some of the argument being made that, listen, we understand the culture thinks one way, we as Christians think another. And I think what's happening is that some Christians are trying to, I guess, hijack the term and or redeem the term for Christian purposes. 
And so I think that could be the case. That might be what's going on here. And I think in many cases, people who use the identity label gay Christian are trying to do just that. They're well-meaning, faithful Christian brothers and sisters. They accept the Bible's teaching on sex. They aren't trying to justify living out a, a sinful lifestyle. They're simply trying to explain or bring clarity to their experience as Christians who happen to struggle with same-sex attraction that, as of yet, God has not given them deliverance from. In other words, these are faithful Christians who are trying to put their ongoing battle with sin into a biblical context of meaning. And I certainly wouldn't want to dismiss these people or the very real need they have to do exactly that, to meet their very real battle with their fallen flesh with the redeeming truth of the gospel. The problem with the term gay Christian, however, is that it does not and cannot fit into a biblical framework for Christian identity. You know, I've often heard the argument, yes, our identity is in Christ. That is the core of our identity. But we live in the world, we still continue to take on other identity labels. I mean, the most basic of them being, you know, our own family names. We take on the identity of our racial groups, whether we're black or white or Asian or Arab, our national groupings, whether we're Chinese or Jewish or Brazilian or whatever. So why is it okay to use these identity qualifiers and not an identity qualifier like gay? And the difference is that those other kinds of identity qualifiers are morally neutral. There's nothing sinful about being named Jones or having black skin or being born Chinese. We cannot say the same thing for same-sex sexual attraction. We cannot and we dare not because Paul is very clear in Romans 1, around verse 24 to 27, that sinful sexual desires, which includes but is not limited to desires for members of the same sex, is the direct result of our sinful rebellion against God and the consequent beginnings of God's wrath being poured out against us. And here's what Paul says, John, in Romans 1.25. This is his summary of man's condition, of how we become the way we are. He says, They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator. So the fundamental departure of man from life with God was that instead of worshipping the Creator, we turned our worship towards the creature itself. We wanted ourselves to take the place of the Creator. And Paul says there was a consequence to that. Because we wanted to worship the creature rather than the Creator, God gave us over, he says, to the very sinful passions or the very sinful desires that we wanted. And there's three therefores that follow this verse. He says, therefore, God gave them over to sinful desires leading to sexual impurity. Sorry, that just precedes it in verse 24. Verse 26, therefore, God gave them over to shameful lusts. And that's where he lays out the unnatural lusts of homosexual sin. And then verse 28, he says, therefore, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And the key is this word, therefore. It's because of our rebellion against God. It's because of our sin and our embrace of the lie and the fact that God's wrath is now being poured out against us. That's why these things have come. So we cannot therefore take a label like gay, which identifies a desire that the Bible calls sinful and attach it to our Christian identity. Okay. So is the issue that the word gay itself is making reference to something sinful as opposed to other identifiers that are not? In short, yes, but not just that it's referring to something sinful, but that it's also being used as an identifier. In other words, it's being used as a way to describe something about who you are. I just want to quote Butterfield again, because she's now addressing this term gay Christian as we're talking about it, as an identifier that we've wrestled from the culture and we're trying to use as a Christian identifier. 
Her background as a professor in literature kind of shows through here. But this is what she says. In the phrase gay Christian, gay is a descriptive or limiting adjective, and its job is to indicate the quality of a noun or pronoun. So it indicates what kind of Christian you are. When a limiting adjective is used to define a people group, she says, it is a mark of identity. When you modify the noun Christian with the adjective gay, you pair terms with incompatible anthropologies and recommend a false philosophy of the soul. Now, that's a rather scholarly kind of way of putting it. Adam Barr and Ron Sitlow wrote a great book called Compassion Without Compromise, and they say the same thing that Butterfield says, only I find them much easier to understand. They say there is not one biblical example of a person identifying with their sinful brokenness and then adding Christian to it. Could you imagine I am an angry, unbelieving, porn-addicted Christian, or I am a lying Christian? They say this is what the Bible declares. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 6. So they say the only valid identification for a follower of Jesus is disciple. And that's Bar and Sitlau. I would add to that that the only valid identity for a follower of Jesus to adopt is child of God. And here's Paul in Romans 8.15. He says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons. That's referring to men and women. Adoption of sonship, by which we cry Abba, which is the Aramaic word for daddy (laughs) or father. Yeah, okay. So as we're looking at this issue, then, how should Christians deal with same-sex attraction? Well, I think the question needs to be addressed not just to those who wrestle with same-sex attraction, but to all of us. This is a church issue. This is for all of us. There's so much I could say, Sean, but I think there's just three things that I think are worth highlighting at this point uh, in our discussion today. The first thing I would say that we need to do in dealing with same-sex attraction as the church is we need to consciously reject and stop using the culturally constructed concept of sexual orientation as any kind of framework for understanding human nature and identity. And this goes for homosexuality and heterosexuality. Barr and Sitlau, they make this point, and I think it's poignant for all of us to listen to this. They remind us the goal of gospel transformation is not healthy heterosexuality. It is total identification with Christ. This is what the gospel can do for a person's identity. So for any person who Christ redeems from a life of sin, the goal of disciple making is the same. We want them to form an entirely new self-understanding, identifying themselves entirely, heart, soul, mind, and strength with the person and work of Christ. So that in terms of their old sinful nature, it has been crucified with Christ. And in terms of their new nature, their nature now, they are a new person made fully alive in Christ. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, new things have come. I just want to quote Butterfield one more time here because she speaks to this as well. And she says it so much better than I could. She says, new creature is a term that beckons God's people to grow in Christ likeness, to grow in sanctification. But we do harm to the call of Christ when we presume that opposite sex desires should replace same sex desires as the exclusive proof of real sanctification. No, no. She says new creatures in Christ means that we have a new mind that governs the old feelings, even if they linger, and a new hope that we are part of Christ's body. Mm -hmm. That is well said. Yeah, I just think she says that so well. 
And that's so important to remember. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say, Sean, is that as the church, we need to remember to grieve equally over the distortions to sexuality caused by sin, whether homosexual or heterosexual, right? It isn't just homosexual sin that grieves God. All sexual sin is evil in God's sight because it is the embodiment of our rebellion against the Creator. You see, in the Garden of Eden, when God removed Adam's rib and used that part of his flesh to create Eve, In returning Eve to Adam as his wife, God was imaging his own nature in the human sexual bond of marriage. It's marvelous when you study this in Genesis. When the husband and wife become one flesh, through sexual union in marriage, they are a living reflection of the unity and diversity existing in God himself as Trinity. Because just as God is diverse in his person, but united in his being, So man and woman in marriage are diverse in person, but united in being through the marital sexual union. That's why Adam could look at Eve and say, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She was a whole other person. And yet they were in marriage through that sexual union. They were one flesh together. Do you see how all sexual sin then is an attack against God? It takes one of the most sacred ways in which humanity bears the image of their creator, and it turns it instead into an instrument for satisfying selfish lust. And our bodies were not made for that. The last thing I'd say, Sean, is that in dealing with same-sex attraction in the church, both for those who wrestle with it personally and for those who are trying to minister to and disciple and serve those who are, we need to be patient. We really need to be patient with those who use gay Christian as an identity label. And my real purpose in this podcast, Sean, has been to help Christians, especially those who may struggle with same-sex attraction, to see the real spiritual dangers in adopting cultural language into our experiential living out of our Christian identity. So that for those of us in the church who do not have these struggles, it's worth remembering that we have not always done a good job, and we have often been downright hurtful and unaccepting towards those with same-sex attraction. Remember that those who do use the term gay Christian and are trying to work out their salvation and identity faithfully in Christ in the light of their own unique battles with their old sinful flesh, we mustn't assume that they're using the vocabulary of culture out of defiance. It could be the problem that we, as the church, have simply not been deliberate or thoughtful enough about developing a redemption vocabulary of our own. That's why I wanted to have this conversation. I think that's what we need to be working towards, is coming up with our own vocabulary to help disciple people through these experiences. And so I'm hoping this conversation will help many of us towards correcting that. But it will require us working together with a great deal of patience and grace and love. Um, But I think Christ can help us with that. Yes. Yeah, for sure. Just before we sign off, Sean, uh, I just want to make note that uh, I've, I've got a few recommended resources that we will post on the episode page for this podcast. In particular, a number of books that I think are, are very helpful, including Rosario Champagne Butterfield's book that I referenced a couple times called Openness Unhindered, and the book by Adam Barr and Ron Sitlow called Compassion Without Compromise. And then there's a couple others as well that I point to. Thanks, Scott, for those recommendations. And thanks for this conversation. I think we can all agree that this question is both relevant and important. And I love the way you finished off there that this topic requires patience, love, and grace. And that goes for all of us. And so as a listener, if you have any questions about what we've been talking about today, uh, something that we might have said or something that you're not quite sure about, we'd encourage you to contact us through our website at preparedancer.org or through Instagram or through Facebook. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, God bless.
This podcast has been a ministry of Prepared to Answer. Our mission at Prepared to Answer is to help prepare, equip, and encourage the Church of Jesus Christ to grow in confidence of faith by teaching Christians to think like Jesus. To access more resources to help you begin understanding life and the world around you with the mind of Jesus, visit our website at www.preparedtoanswer.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at at prepared to answer. Or contact us directly by email at info at prepared to May the Lord bless and keep you.